You are now listening to the Purpose Edits Podcast. You gotta be willing to be vulnerable. You have to have the ability to self-assess, and not everybody has the ability to self-assess. You don't necessarily have to like sweets and successful in school. You just have to know how to play the game that's necessary and get through it. Welcome to the Perfect Settings Podcast. This is a short yet powerful conversation designed to help you do three things that can ultimately change the trajectory of your life. One, discover your purpose. Two, walk in your purpose. And three, ultimately fulfill your purpose. I am your host, Coach Vic, and I'm joined as always by my lifelong friend, my brother, the educator, Dr. Shane Calhoun. Shane, what up, homie? How you doing today? Doing good, brother. How are you? Man, I'm blessed, brother. I'm blessed. It's a good day. I got a good vibe, good feeling. I don't know why, but it was good today, man. Good, man. Good. Man, I've been meaning to tell you, man, you look revitalized these last couple of weeks, these last couple of days here. Like, you just got a new, uh, a glow sounds weird, so you just got a new vibe going on. Man, you can say I'm glowing. I know some of that is on the light. Some of that is on my head and reflecting I'm good with that, off man. the ball head. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, I am, man. Mentally, I am revived, rejuvenated. I feel like I was able to hit the reset button over the last couple of weeks, despite everything that was going on. Um, you know, shout out to being able to recharge the battery. Um, yeah. That don't mean adversity didn't hit me the last couple of weeks. I just found a positive space to get into. You know, I had a couple of major changes happen in my life. So, man, life is good, man. I can't wait. I can't wait till people see what comes out of this because I'm, I'm, I'm cooking. That's I'm amazing. in the kitchen cooking. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I hope it rubs off. I hope it's contagious. They say energy is is contagious. Yo, you get out my head, yo. What you mean? <laughs> no, like because you you're like nailing my blue your mind today. Shoot, my bad. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've been hanging out for a long time. I can yeah, just feel your perfect. vibes vibrating, man. You know, it's funny we talk about uh, having that connection. Uh, today's guest for our audience is another good friend of mine from college, and he he's another. He's another young man that he and I connected like that. We just had good vibes. I could tell he was good people. He was about his business. He was a man of consequence. Uh, you know, short, short, quick bio on him. Graduated from Eastern Kentucky University, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, studied political science while he was there. Went on to Toledo University Law School, where he achieved his law degree. And he originally hails from Cincinnati, but now resides in D.C. as a prosecuting attorney. Um, really excited to get him on the show uh, because what we are going to talk about today is how to impact the community through the justice system. So please give a big, warm, welcome round of applause to Montez Mason. What's up, homie? How you doing today? Hello, brother? What's going on? What's going on? How y'all doing? And blessed. I'm good, man. It's good to see you again, man. Long time. I know it's been a long time. Too long. Yeah, it has been, man. You know, and COVID here recently say we can't travel, but when all this is over, we got to link back up. Absolutely, absolutely. It makes you realize, um, you know, how precious time is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. This uh, this whole shutdown, man. I don't know what DC was like, and maybe you can you can touch on that. What DC has been like during the shutdown, but it was it was pretty nuts here in Tampa. I mean, I think uh, the first few months. Um, you know, uh, it was probably like anywhere else. Everybody was worried. Uh, the grocery stores are bare. Uh, but 
I think after a while, everybody kind of settled into it. You know, people wear their mask and um, and people kind of got used. I think at this point, I just think people are tired, you know. But for the most part, for the most part, people are taking it seriously. Um, and I think the local governments in this area are are taking it seriously for the most part and the restaurants are taking it seriously. So a lot of things have been shut down. Unfortunately, um, you see some small businesses going going out of uh, business or whatever. Um, and sometimes I think about, I wonder what, what is going to be like when, uh, when the world opens back up. Um, and so I feel bad for the people that couldn't stay in business. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I pray that they, they bounce back from, you know, just this chapter and people see it as just that this is a chapter. It don't have to be the end result for what the rest of, you know, your life looks like. It's unfortunate, but you can rebuild and overcome that. Well, listen, before we get too deep into this, Shane, I'm curious, what blew your mind this week, man? So you hit on it a little bit. It'd been all in the intro. And right before um, we came on, I was listening to uh, the one of Eric Thomas's The Secret to Success podcast. So it's season, t- season two, um, episode 257. And in it, he was talking about making decisions and he was talking about energy and there was two things that stuck out to me and he said um energy a lot of people energy is for a lot of people energy is used for the end game but not used to create the end game Hmm. so a lot of us focus on the end product as opposed to focus on where we want to be as opposed to focusing on the steps that it takes to get there and it's kind of like what you said when you said um um, a lot of life changes. The other thing that stuck with me is about perspective. He said, how you're, um, there's no good or bad decisions. What makes a good or bad decision is the res- the perspective of the decision. So like you were saying a second ago with the businesses going out, you know, it is bad and on the surface it may seem, but that might be that new thing that you need to catapult you into the next thing. And I mean, of course, I don't want anybody to lose their business or lose their livelihood, but it's all about perspective. Like a loss is never really a loss if you take the opportunity to learn. So um, after y'all listen to this podcast and next week's podcast, I encourage you to go check out, you know, season two, episode episode 257, because it was a really good episode. Yeah, man, that's dope. You having the energy. Yeah, I guess it's a cliche. They always say uh, there is an opportunity in crisis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of, I forget who the speaker is, uh, but he talks about where purpose and building a legacy, how it comes out of crisis, crisis being one of the four reasons that people find and discover who they are and what they were meant to do and meant to be on this earth. And I know, Tez, you and I kind of touched on that. you, You made this statement, and I want you to touch on this. You said, I don't think that I necessarily believe that people and correct me on this uh have a purpose in life but they find their purpose and and passion in what they do correct me on that yeah so basically what i was saying is i don't know if i necessarily subscribe to this um to this notion i mean everybody everybody's different you know everybody has their own mind but i don't know if i necessarily subscribe to this motion that you know hey i was put here on this to do x y and z um i think i think people 
you know, well, at least what I did was, you know, I think people look at the world around them and they see what, how they want the world to be mm-hmm. and, and the things that they need to do to make things the way they feel like the world should be. Uh, that's their purpose that they start, they, they, they find their purpose in that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think that's one way um, that I look at it is that, you know, you can find your purpose um, in how, and however you desire the world to be around you, whether it's in yeah. your community, whether it's in your family, whether it's just in your own personal life, whether it's at work, you know, whatever, whatever the situation may be. Yeah. And, you know, for for us, like the whole premise of the show is helping people to discover their purpose in life. Right. That That's kind of what we we say and we you know preach and press upon people is that you have a purpose in this life. Figuring out what that is is up to you. And we try to bring people like yourself on and talk about your experiences and your journeys and your challenges and your struggles and share our own as well that hopefully somebody can find common ground similarity in themselves to find and discover their purpose and walk in it. So I can understand you saying that it's not about necessarily having a holistic purpose in life, but maybe it's more about finding purpose in something that you're doing and and where you're directing your energy. If I'm understanding you correctly. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think purpose is, speaking to what Montez said and at this as I as I've lived it it's more of a journey than a destination Mm. does that make sense Mm -hmm. like you know I people evolve things change people change so what you would feel what you feel as though you were put here to do today may not necessarily be what you end up doing tomorrow so So, purpose is present tense I guess if that's the way you I don't know it's present tense meaning it's Whatever moment that you're in and that you're fulfilling, that's what you're doing. It's in the present tense. Like you said, yeah. it's not a destination. It's not it's going to be, it won't be your past um, or your purpose won't be what they describe after the fact. You know, it isn't the end result. You know, you did something else. Like you walk currently in your purpose. It's, it's purpose, present yeah. tense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That I, makes I, sense. I, yeah. I can subscribe to that. Yeah. So, so Tez, let's, let's dive into your journey. Give the people... Tell us about your journey and how you came to be a prosecutor in D.C. All right. So, I mean, if I, if I was to talk about my journey, I would have to go all the way back to, to Cincinnati. So, so what I'm like, uh, you know, 12, 13 years old, um, and, you know, not to make a story too long, but basically, you know, it's, it, you know, I'm, I'm in middle school, um, you know, going to school i'm walking through my neighborhood i'm seeing things um you know i i know that things aren't the way they should be you know and i want things in my neighborhood to be better you know i i have i'll see a guy i remember was one guy that stayed down the street from me uh they called him uh they called him uh what was that guy's name man i can't i can't remember the guy's name man but there was a guy that stayed down the street from me and I hadn't seen him for a while one time. And I said, man, where you been at, man? He goes, oh, I was locked up. And I'm, we like 13. And I'm like, locked up? I'm like, for what? He said, he stole a car. And I'm thinking to myself, like, why did you steal a car? 
And he goes, oh, man, I had to get around. You know, and I just thought, I just thought to myself, like, man, this guy's, like, really misguided. And if he just had somebody to, like, you know, guide him, you know, maybe he, you know, would, would, would do better. And um, the school that I went to uh, was, like, this college prep school. I was able to get into this college prep school. You had to take a test to get in. You could fail out. It was a it was a public school, but it was uh, it was kind of set aside uh, for kids who uh, who who were able to pass this test and get into the school. Um, and so that particular school, we drew kids from all over the city, and um, a lot of uh, wealthy kids went to the school. Wealthy white kids went to the school, and so I remember, you know, on the weekend, someone might throw a little get together at their house, and I remember going to other uh, my my my. Um, classmates' homes in these neighborhoods, and I would show up to these neighborhoods, neighborhoods that I'd never been to before, and I would look around their neighborhood, and I would look around their house, and I'm like, why everybody, why, why, how, how is it that they, that they live like this, and when I go back to my neighborhood, totally different. We're, we're living like the way we're living, mm-hmm. and, and so, um, you know, I just remember having this idea of how I wanted to bring about a change in my community, just to help people and to give back. And so um, my idea of that was, was like, oh, well, maybe one day I'll run for like city council. And I thought about, okay, if I'm being a politician, you know, I need to understand how the laws work. So I'll go to law school. And the whole reason why I thought about politicians being lawyers was because I remember watching the 1992 presidential elections with my mother and I saw Bill Clinton was a lawyer. And so that made me think about, you know, oh, you got to be a to be a politician, you got to be a lawyer. So I thought one day I'd grow up and I'd run for city council, maybe be the mayor of Cincinnati. But in order, before I get to that point, I'll become a lawyer so I understand the laws and I can, you know, affect change. So that was like what was going on in my like 12, 13-year-old mind. Um, fast forward, you know, graduate from high school, I'm going to college. I'm like, okay, I'll major in political science because, you know, it's kind of like the gateway to go to law school. So I go to political science, uh, go to, go to, go to college, major in political science. I meet, I meet Vic. <laughs> this is when his life takes a turn for the worse. I meet, I meet Vic in college. Um, but anyway, then, uh, after college, I, I end up going to the university of Toledo college of law. Obviously by this time, you know, you know, over a decade has gone by by this time, I've seen things, you know, I've, I've read books, um, I've, you know, I've learned history, I've learned politics, and I guess by this time, I'm still, I'm kind of turned off by politics. I'm like, I don't want to go to law. I don't want to be a, a politician, uh, but I know I still want to be a lawyer. You know, that's what I have my mind set on, but I didn't exactly know where I was going to go with it. So I graduated from law school. I leave uh, Ohio and I moved to the D.C. area, take the Maryland bar, uh, become licensed. Uh, Unfortunately, I graduated in 2009 from law school in the middle of like the recession, the housing market crash. There were no jobs. So I spent a few years just kind of like unemployed or underemployed. But eventually I got a job as a public defender with the Maryland Office of the Public Defender. And so um, I'm working as a public defender in Maryland. And so finally, this, this, this journey that I was on that started when I was like 12 or 13 years old, and I just want to see people that look like me do better. 
now I'm thrust into this situation where I'm representing people uh, that that look like me. Mm. And wow. And, you know, I'm going into jails. I'm going into prisons, um, talking to guys, working their cases, um, you know, fighting for them in court. And so um, I think the thing the thing for me was was sometimes I was like, you know, I'm just be honest with you. Like most of the cases you get, most of your clients are guilty. <laughs> I hate to say it like that, but most of your clients really? are guilty. Yeah, man, they 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 did it. They might not, they might have not done everything that they was charged with, but most of the time they did some of it. <laughs> but it really wasn't, it really wasn't about that. What it was really about was making sure that the process was fair, making sure they weren't being railroaded, making sure that the process was fair. And making sure that you had, they had an opportunity to to come out at the other end at some point without things being too messed up. But go ahead, I'm sorry. I got a question. So you talk about guilty versus innocent, but the part that stuck out to me was the 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 focus of the public defender. Is that something that is taught to a public defender that hey, listen? Your job is to make sure that the process is fair. No, no, no. That's not that's not taught. That's not taught to the public defender. Um, I mean, that, you know, if, if you're, I think that's taught to you just as an attorney in general. But as a public defender, nobody says like, ah, oh, your clients are probably guilty. No, you go in and you and you fight for your clients. You file your motions to try to make sure that they aren't um, that that you can get a not guilty or you can get a dismissal. Um, you, you fight, you fight as hard as you can and you go to trial and you, 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 you fight as hard as you can in trial. But what, what I think the thing about it is when I was a public defender, what I would try to do is take a realistic approach at the cases and try to get my clients to take a realistic approach and, and get them to make good life decisions. Because, you know, if you go in to a case and you got a pretty favorable plea offer, but then you see the prosecution has evidence stacked against your client and your client's facing decades in prison. And this prosecutor has given you a pretty favorable pre- plea offer. And you know what the evidence is. It's like, come on, man, that's not, that's not be a fool. It's not, I'm trying to, I'm not, I'm not trying to plead you out. We can go to trial. That's no problem, but I'm trying to save your life. You know what I'm saying? You know, where you go in for two and a half years versus the next 12 years, you know what I'm saying? Man, and we're, 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 we're talking about a difference between whether or not you, you, you miss first and second grade or you missed first grade through 12th grade, you know, the kids, Yeah, you know what I'm saying? And so that's what, that's what we're talking about, you know? Um, And so those are the type of life decisions that people, you know, had to make and, you know, you got to try to, you know, and I think one of the, one of the most fulfilling things though is when you were able to like really represent someone and really like get an outcome that's favorable for them, um, you know, the, the appreciation that they had when they would look at you and they would say, thank you. You know, I really appreciate it. It was a lot of thankless days, but when you did get those thank yous, people really, really, really appreciated it. Um, or even when you. somebody, you know, got out. And, yeah. And when, when somebody got out and even if they went to jail for a little bit of time and they got out and they say, you know, I really appreciate you, you know, you took care of me, you know, that, that, that makes you feel good. Um, but anyway, to get to the how, how I became a prosecutor, when I was a public defender, there was a um, there was a woman, uh, this woman named Lashonda, 
she was uh, she was the pro she was one, one of the main prosecutors that I went up against all the time. And uh, I just saw the way she handled her cases. You know, she she was very fair. She went hard against the people who deserve to be going hard at to go hard at. And she took it easy on people uh, that that deserved a break. And I just saw how fair she was. And I thought to myself, I was like, wow, if I was ever a prosecutor, you know, I would I would do things like her. And so I think the main difference between being a defense attorney and being a prosecutor is, you know, when you're a prosecutor, you can control the outcomes a lot more. And so, um, you know, for me, you know, for me, I can take the experiences that I have um, from growing up in the type of community that I grew up in and and, and I can take the experience from having family, uh, at least one family member or family members that have gone to jail and they know how that feels to be separated from your family. You know, um, the experience of just being a black male and knowing how it feels to have police like unjustly run down on you. Um, and, and I could take that. I could bring that into the courtroom. And I help that. I use that in helping me make my decisions um, in court. So I guess like one of the things that uh, for me is that I that I find joy in is or at least that I feel like, you know, I'm here and it's a good it's a good thing that I'm here is because, you know, when people come into the criminal justice system man, it's it is a hassle it is a hassle how so and, you know you get on probation you got to be on probation for x amount of time you got to continue to report you got to take these classes you got to check in um and and so you got to go back and forth to court if something if you if, if, if something happens and they're like you didn't do this right you gotta go you gotta go to court it's just a, it's just a hassle. You got to pay a lawyer. I mean, it is it is a hassle. And so some of the things I, I think about is like, you know, where can I make someone's life a little more hassle free in the places that I can? You know, if I can make somebody's life a little more hassle free, if I see that they've, you know, really made an effort to like, you know, rectify things or they paid their debt. It's like, all right, man, we can let that go. You know, so um, so I think I think for me that's that's something that you know I find purpose in. Also, uh, as a prosecutor, because um, I've prosecuted in Maryland, I now prosecute in D.C. Sometimes you get victims. A lot of times, people don't like to talk about the victims um, that you that that you have in, uh, in 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 cases, especially in the black community. Uh, a lot of black people get. Uh, victimized and that's not a narrative that's out there is that you know sometimes when you have black defendants and we're talking about putting black people in jail on the flip side of that you have a black victim you have someone whose house was burglarized you have someone who was assaulted um for for an example i remember prosecuting a guy um and he had he came home drunk to his girlfriend's house. Uh, she at, he was playing music real loud, laying in the bed. His, her, her, her kids, which were not his kids, were trying to sleep. And he and she asked, the kids came in the room and asked her if her boyfriend could turn the music down. He was acting like he couldn't hear her. She went and reached for his phone. 
he grabbed her, pushed her out into the living room, and now he's choking her in the middle of the living room floor. And her kids are sit, standing there looking. This is a black woman, black kids, black man. Her kids are looking at their mother being choked out in the middle of the living room floor, right? Um, eventually the police were called, you know, you can see from the body worn camera, she answers the door, she's crying, she's in tears, you know, and this wasn't the first time that he had done this to her because we had tried to prosecute him on other occasions, but she backed out, you know, and she wouldn't. But finally, this last time, I was able to uh, keep her on board uh, and, and, and convince her that she needed to testify, um, that this wasn't going to stop. And so um, we were able, well, at least I was able to secure a prosecution against this guy. And I think, I think with his record and all that other stuff, I think we end up, I think he ended up serving like one year of like actual incarceration in the, in the uh, county jail in the county that I was working in. But um, I, I felt like, I felt like this, I felt like if we could just get this guy out of her life for at least one year, that might give her an opportunity to, to just move on in that year, to get her kids together, to get herself together and just to have that separation for at least that year. Um, so just it's, it's, it's things like that, that, you know, I'm happy that I did all the things that I needed to do to become a lawyer, that I was a public defender for as long as I was. And I got that experience. I had the experience living in the communities that I lived in. And, and because all of those things taken together allowed me to be in the place that I'm in right now to be able to protect this woman from this man. Mm -hmm. And so um, wow. that's some, that right there was, is, is very satisfying. I got some other stories, but that right there, things like that right there, very satisfying are just being able to, you know, if, 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 like I have defendants and, you know, we might, you know, we might give them some type of diversion where they enter a guilty plea and then they, uh, uh you know, they got to do some programs before the case is dismissed and they don't and I have definitely to want to touch on that more diversion yeah. programs. I got a couple I'll, thoughts and ideas around that, too. I'll talk about that. But but, you know, people come back and, you know, for whatever reason, they might not have completed the programs or whatever. But just give somebody a second chance, you know, just give somebody a second chance to say, hey, look, you know, I know you didn't do it the first time. You didn't do it in the, in the time that was originally allotted to you. I get it. We're going to give you more time to do it. And just not, you know, just not going so hard on people in court, man. Just giving people a break, you know, like just recognizing, like, is it that serious? That people make mistakes. Mm -hmm. People make mistakes. And sometimes people make human. mistakes repeatedly. True. <laughs> true. A hard head does make a soft behind. That yeah. is very true. Um, but you, in essence, you touch on or appeal to the human side, it sounds like a lot more, recognizing that none of us are perfect. People make mistakes. And if you got an opportunity to give somebody a second shot to redeem themselves, For sure. then you do that. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I try to give I try to give people uh diversion as much as I can, uh, within reason. You know, you still gotta keep public safety in mind. But uh, within reason, I try to give people uh, diversion. I try to give people, um, you know, recommend uh, sentences that are 
that are that are reasonable. Um, and then I think one of the other things is is when, when as a prosecutor, when you're standing up in court and you're at, you're at sentencing and you're talking about somebody, you have to talk about that person in human terms. You can't you can't sit there and say the defendant this, the defendant that. You say Mister this and Miss that. You know, you refer to them as their name. That's a person that you're standing across from. And it's sometimes it's just about just the dignity in the whole situation, you know, and you don't want to, you, you don't want to, you want to, you don't want to talk down about that person. You might want to talk down about their behavior, but you don't want to talk down about that person. That's so, gotta be rough, especially when you're trying to protect them from a system that naturally dehumanizes them. Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, nobody should go to jail. Jail is not made for human beings. Like, it's not, yeah. people are not fit to be behind bars, you know? And yeah. I don't know if you've ever done a tour of a jail, uh, but these are, jails aren't good places. Like, no, they're hard places, you know? I used to be so depressed when I would come out of the jail visiting clients because it, they're, they're, not, they're not good places. So I think... So to kind of go back to the original point, you know, when I was, I originally became a lawyer because I looked at the communities, I looked at my community and I said, you know what, I want to, I want to be a difference in my community. And I thought I was going to do that by, uh, through a political, you know, type of job or whatever, and, or maybe council or mayor or something like that. But things kind of shifted, like, as you talked about earlier, that things, things shift and things change. And, you know, I kind of shifted away from the politics, my focus on going into that. And, and, and I found myself being a civil servant. Mm-hmm. And, and I find, you know, I find joy and I find like small victories and just being able to make somebody's life just a little bit easier. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Man, um, that's, that's dope to hear, to think about, you know, a thankless job. Yeah. And I mean, I've heard public defender is absolutely a thankless job, but to hear that people actually do thank you and appreciate what you've done for them, even if it still results in them missing time with their families and mm-hmm. it causes a major disruption in their, their life's trajectory yeah. to still be able to see that, Hey, my situation worked out and you were a catalyst for that. That's gotta mm-hmm. be rewarding. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I, I know I had a case where I had a guy that was um, he was charged with attempted murder um, in one case and he was charged with uh, assault in another case. Mm. So the assault case, we had a trial first. Uh, he was he was we went to trial, jury trial. We got a not guilty. All right. So then an attempted murder case. Um. He, he he got a little he he got a little emboldened from the not guilty from the second degree assault trial. This one started saying. feeling himself. He started feeling, start smelling himself, and I was like, ah, "Look, man, you know we don't want to make a bad life decision here because they were going to drop the attempt at murder and they wanted him to plead to the highest degree of assault, but they were going to give him a light sentence." So I'm looking at the amount of time he's already been in jail. I'm looking at I'm looking at the uh, the parole laws in the state of Maryland on a crime of violence. You got to do 50 percent of your time. So I'm like, look, if you don't join any prison gangs and get in any fights, you know, you out of here, you out of here the next like 18 to 24 months, you know. 
However, if you lose this trial, you know, and <laughs> you you might be spending the next two decades mm. in jail. You mm. know, so I'm like, you know, we gotta make some life decisions here. You know what I'm saying? And um, mm-hmm. I have moved on from the public defender's office, but I mean, he should be out of jail now. He's he should have been out of jail for the last few years now, and hopefully, he's not messing up anymore. But he 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 walked a tightrope for a long time. But it's like little things like that, man. Because you know, the thing about it is. He has children and his children are going to need him in their lives, you know? And so you got to start, you got to think about things from that human, that human level. You know, even, even when I was um, prosecuting in Maryland, I was a, I was the drug court prosecutor. And so we get people who are, who burglarize uh, people's homes, who, who commit all these thefts, who are doing all these crimes because they have this addiction, um, you know, the heroin epidemic was was back on the rise or whatever. And you get people with all these uh, addictions. And the plea offers that I was making was drug court, drug court, drug court. Let's get as many people in drug court as possible. And then when you once you get them in drug court, you start to realize these people have mental health issues. Mm. A lot of these folks got mental health issues. Uh, they, they got they got trauma that they're dealing with. Um, uh, they, they're dealing with lack of education, lack of employment, um, and uh, on top of the drug, the drug issue. And so when you, when you get into all of that, the, you know, you start to, then they have children. And so some of this stuff is generational. So it's like, you know, if the, if, if the kids are seeing their parents, uh, as drug addicts, they're probably going to do the same, you know, they might do the same or, or, or be involved in something else you know they don't have the guidance that they need and so now you're talking about generational trauma that might go on for the next two or three generations and so you know so the thing about it is is like if if you can like offer somebody drug court and then they can actually get treatment you could potentially change the trajectory of this family yeah for the next few generations potentially i mean you don't know but but maybe you know and so it's like a small victory in that it has the potential yeah. to change the trajectory of not just one person, but right. an entire generation, if not multiple generations. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we could argue that's probably the problem with jails is that there there doesn't seem to be a solid plan on how to help people get themselves together once they're in there. Like mm-hmm. there, there are not enough programs to, you know, um, to help you better yourself. So you're just not in there rotting away waiting to get out. As opposed to coming out with something. But I've heard jail be referred to as big business. Yeah. Yeah. Big business, right? So, you know, big business is going to focus on revenue generating streams, right? Not necessarily focused on taking care of the people, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's definitely a lot of money in jails when you think about the phone calls that people got to make, the collect calls. You think about... Uh, well, now they're doing the Zoom stuff and uh, um, and other video uh, conferencing type of calls. So Wait, you say collect calls? Yeah, collect calls. People, got the, the the jails, the, the they they have to pay the, for those collect calls. Yeah. yeah. So like, that's, the jails make money on that, or the phone service make money on that? No. Well, so the phone service makes money on that. Oh. So, that, so I'm just saying, I'm oh, just saying okay. that's business. All the that's money, money being made. Yeah, the money, the money flying through there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so the commissary, you know, yeah. whoever the food service uh, provider is, I don't know if it's Cisco or another food yeah. company. I'm not trying to throw those people under the bus. I'm just saying. We don't know. They're, yeah. they're, they're a big food manufacturer, so I, that's why I thought of their name. 
But, mm-hmm. you know, you got the, whoever's providing the food, whoever's providing the clothes, you know, the electricity, mm-hmm. the electric company, you know, the water company, all these people are making money off of this, this, these jails, you know, and all these ancillary services that they got to have. Mm. So let me, let me switch gears here for a bit. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I came across an article that was talking about a group of 32 black federal prosecutors in DC put together this like 16 or 10 page memo. Did you hear about that? Where they, they presented it to, um, who, who, what is the position over the federal prosecutor's office? It's a guy, uh, he just recently, I think, took office. I don't know the name of the position. It's not attorney general. Um, right, right. Each each U.S. attorney's office has a U.S. attorney that heads up yeah. their office. U.S. Yeah, attorney. I don't, work, I don't work for the U.S. attorney. There's I know. another prosecutorial authority in D.C. that I work for. Yeah. Right, I know, I know. What I, what I wanted to bring up was this. So these... It was in the wake of the George Floyd murder. Yeah. Everything that was erupting over the summer across the nation, right? Um, These 32 Black federal prosecutors signed a 10-page memo that outlined changes they felt would help prosecutors make the fairest decisions. And two of the major uh, changes that they called for in this was implicit bias training, Um, And this had to do with gun crimes that unfairly targeted black communities and alternatives to incarceration. Right. Yeah. So you're a black prosecuting attorney in D.C. Yeah. This summer in the wake of everything that's happening. Talk to us about that experience, because I would imagine it's a challenge upholding the law that you are set uh, and sworn to protect and, and uphold, but also being a black man that that same law and justice system seems to be unfairly targeting. All right, so, so you do notice um, uh, a disproportionate amount of black folks coming through uh, the court system than you do any other uh, demographic of people. Uh, so, so you do notice that. And, and so here's the thing. When something comes across your desk, that's all you can deal with. That's what you're left with. You're just left with what's on your desk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you're not down in City Hall. You're not the legislator for your jurisdiction. Um, you're not the police department. Uh, you're, you're the prosecutor. And so only thing that you can deal with is what's on your, on your especially as a line attorney, only thing you can deal with is what's on your desk. And the thing that you have to do is you have to make the best decision with what you have. And so I'll give you an example. I had a case one time where uh, it was a, it was a guy, it was some guys in a park uh, in uh, the Southeast area of DC. Uh, It was familiar uh, with that area. It was in um, the, the the Metropolitan Police Department has the uh, their, their precincts divided into seven precincts. So it was in it was in District Seven, which is on that southern end, south in the Anacostia River uh, area. And so yeah. that's a it's like it's 90%, different over there. It's like ninety percent black over there, um, and it's, it's it's one of the it's one of the poorest 
communities in the uh, in in DC. In DC, anyway, it's, it's rough. It, yeah, yeah, it's rough. Historically, it's, it's been a rough place. Anyway, so I remember I had a skate. There were some guys hanging out over there, and um, and they were doing some type of hand in hand transactions, right, in this park. Uh, there's nothing illegal about a hand in hand transaction. Hold on. I can I can hand you my cell phone. We're in the park. I can hand you my cell phone, and you take it. That's a hand in hand transaction. Hmm. Okay. There's nothing illegal about that. Me giving you my cell phone. So there's a hand in hand transaction, but they don't know what's being what's what's being passed back and forth. Yeah. You know, they run up on this guy. They grab him. They, he, he has a book bag on. He wiggles out of his book bag and he takes off running. They end up tackling him, placing him in handcuffs, bring him back. They search the book bag and they find uh, some bullets in there. So in DC, uh, it's illegal to, it's illegal to possess ammunition if you don't have a gun registered uh, that carries that ammunition. So you can't carry the ammunition if you don't have a gun that's registered that uses that ammunition. All right, is one of the strong things about their gun laws in D.C. Everything about this interaction is completely illegal. He, his Fourth Amendment rights have been completely violated um, because you have to have probable cause to right. or reasonable suspicion to detain someone. And you need reasonable, articulable facts to detain somebody. And there's nothing re reasonable about stopping somebody in a public park who's passing one thing to somebody else. And you can't tell what's being passed. You can't tell what's being passed. There's nothing reasonable about that. So when you let the stop and think about that for a moment. Now, this ha this happening, this is happening in, you know, uh, district seven in a highly populated black area. Would this happen in upper Northwest DC hmm. where the Obamas live? Sure. And they left the White House when they would this happen in their neighborhood where they live. You got two guys that live in that neighborhood, you know, walking down the street. They're passing something back and forth to each other. Would that happen? Would they? Would the police run down on them and grab them and and say, "Hey, what is that?" And then search their property? No, Probably. that wouldn't happen. You know what I did? I filed a dismissal and I got rid of that case. That case was out the door. <laughs> All kind of all kind of constitutional law violations, as it should be, as it should be, it regardless should regardless of color, regardless of race, regardless yes. of of location. But we know, but we know why that happened because it, we it's they felt comfortable running up on that guy because he was a poor guy in a park in that location where you wouldn't do you wouldn't have done that in Obama's neighborhood where you got diplomats and all those type of people. You got some diplomat taking a walk, taking a jog down the street. You're not going to run up on him for passing a pack of gum. To, I don't know, whatever, whatever he's passing back and forth to the next guy, you know, it's just not going to happen. Right. And so, and so you, you got to be realistic about things like that. Things like that actually happen. You know, th th those are the type of things that are creating the, the, the disproportionate things that the over-policing, th those type of things are, are creating uh, uh, disproportionate numbers. And only thing I could do was say, this is a constitutional law violation. Yes, this guy is guilty of unlawfully possessing, possessing ammunition. Yeah, he did it. But the way in which you got to finding oh, yeah, this out, 
was completely illegal. That was wrong. You know, that was wrong. So, so, so you focus, like you said, you focus on what's on your desk, meaning you focus on the facts of the situation. You focus on the facts of the case and you try to remove maybe what bias you might have because we all got biases, right? And For I'm sure. sure, you know, everything that happened over the summer and is still happening around, you know, the country affects you, but you still have a job to do. Yeah, for sure. You still got a job to do. I mean, you still bring who you are to the job. Well, somebody else might have said, somebody else might have might have made the argument that this, they, they would have, another person may, may have said, you know what, I'm going to continue to prosecute this case, right? I'm not saying in my office or wherever, I'm just saying this, anywhere USA, this Somebody, so another prosecutor could have said, you know what, I'm going to prosecute this case. And the defense attorney would have filed his motion to dismiss the case for the constitutional violations. The prosecutor would have, could have came up with some creative argument and said, this isn't a, a, a constitutional violation. And they could have did all the research and went back and forth with all the motions or whatever else. And then this person, this defendant, who's actually charged with this crime, has to go back and forth to court. They got to live with the anxiety of what's going to happen with my case. Am I going to catch this? Am I going to get convicted of this? Incarceration is on the table. Uh, unlawful possession of ammunition in D.C. is very unlikely that you're actually going to go to jail for, for that alone by itself. Um, but in some other part of the country, you might go to jail for it, mm -hmm. you know? And so, and so you got to stop and think, like, what are we doing, you know? And in, in this situation, I'm to to me, you know, I took an oath to or affirmation to uphold the Constitution, and and that's what I was going to do, you know. And so I, I looked at this situation, and from as a black man, as a black man who grew up in an impoverished community, you know, Section Eight food stamps and all that type of stuff, you know as a black man who's been uh, illegally detained by the police, I know how this feels. I know how that brother felt. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, no, we're not going to do that. You, We're not going to violate rights, not on my watch. And I'm not, and even if at the end of the day, even if I wanted to go forward with it and I filed all the motions and I had cre uh, creative arguments to try to keep this thing going and keep this thing alive, you know, I'm not going to put somebody through the anxiety of that when I know that this is a constitutional violation or it's even too close. Mm -hmm. Hey, what's up, Purpose Addicts? It's Coach Vic. Hey, listen, I got a couple questions for you. Do you or someone you know have a really dope brand or business but need help getting the word out? Or maybe you sell a product that people need or host a podcast that could really take off if you could just increase the foot traffic? Well, you're in luck. Shane and I would like to use our show Purpose Addicts to help you do just that. Listen, man, all my years in sales taught me a really important lesson when it comes to growing a business. As an advertiser, you should be interested in doing one thing, putting what you do in front of the highest number of eyeballs possible. One of the best ways to capture a lot of attention is buying ad space on existing platforms with an established audience like our show Purpose Addicts. You can now purchase ad space through us that will air during as many episodes as you want. It can either be at the start of the show to grab the audience's attention, in the middle of the conversation while everybody is deep in thought, 
or at the end of an episode, making sure their last impression is on Y-O-U. Just send us an email at purposeaddicts02 at gmail.com. Again, that's purposeaddicts02 at gmail.com with the subject line ad space to request more details about our offers. Or you can contact us directly through social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Purpose Addicts. And while you're at it, visit our YouTube channel to see clips and full episodes of the show. Here's where you can leave comments about our content and tell us what you need to help you walk in your purpose. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and share what we're doing. It costs you $0 to show support. Yeah, I know that's a shameless plug, but so what? Listen, in all seriousness, I do want you to think about this. If you have ads airing on our show, as our audience grows, so does yours. So why not partner up with us to let everyone know how being dope is in your DNA? Our audience of addicts is looking for exactly what you have to offer. They just don't know it exists yet. Grab ad space today and tell the world what you do best. Now go live life on purpose. That moment when you said, as a black man, I know what it felt like. I know what that brother felt like as a prosecuting attorney. Like that moment right there just resonated with me for, for whatever reason. How hard it's got to be in your shoes. You know what I'm saying? I don't know yeah. that I don't know that I could do it. You know what I'm saying? I just don't know that I could I could stay in that space and focus on the work. Well, you know what? It, it, sometimes it does get hard. Sometimes, you know, I ask myself, like, what am I doing? How long do I want to do this for? Sometimes it does get hard. But sometimes, you know, when you're able to just cut somebody a break and you're just able to 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 make somebody's life just a little bit easier. It makes it all worth it. Yeah, I mean, okay, I, I'll give you an example. I had a, I had a, a client, I had a, well, not client, I had a defendant who she picked up two DUIs back to back, right? Uh, within like a month of each other. And uh, I gave her a, a deal where I, she pled to guilty to one DUI and I dismissed the other DUI. And I probably wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> and my supervisor was like, I don't know what you're doing, but don't do that anymore. Um, you know, but you know, I usually don't do that, but it was just something about, about this particular case, this particular situation. I saw how she was doing pretrial and it was just something about this particular situation where I, I said, you know what? I think I believe in this person. I, I think, you know, every once in a while I deviate from the, the norm, and I, but it was just something about this particular case where I said, okay, I, I could, I, I don't know, when watching the body worn camera, it just seemed like she had something else going on in her life, you know, and I think she ended up, I think ended up being like, she had like some deaths in her family and she, the last few years have been a struggle for her or whatever, but she completed the programs that she was supposed to complete fairly quickly after she entered her guilty plea and she hadn't been back. And it, you know, what's funny about the whole situation um, not too long after that, I started seeing her on the train on my morning commute. What? Yeah. I take public transportation. <laughs> I started to see her on the train on my morning commute. I saw I saw her and her son on the train. She was taking her son to school every day, and I would see her on the train. You know? Um, so, 
you know, sometimes you just, you know, sometimes you just gotta give people a break, man. Sometimes people deserve a, a break, you know. Instead of instead of two DUIs, she got one. So there's hopefully she does something with it. Did um is the disparity as big as people think? Like, I, from my end, we we understand what the disparities are because to a degree we've lived it in some way, shape, or fashion. But is it as as bad as one would think? just what happens amongst us to our community or is it somewhere in the middle? What are your thoughts on that? We say the disparities as far as just how uh, people of color are treated, the, the, the sentences they get, the, the, the lack of empathy or sympathy, like you try to provide that we get um, right. the, the things that make it disproportionate. Are, are those things as bad as we think? I think so. Yes, I think so. Now in DC, I don't know if I necessarily see that, Okay. Um, as far as like uh, the sentences and things like that, I mean, I definitely see a disproportionate amount of black people coming through the court. But as far as like you know uh, how long people are sent to jail and 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 the, and the length of the sentences, you know, I don't know because I because I'm I'm dealing I don't deal with as as the as this really serious crimes like the U.S. Attorney's Office is dealing with. Um, so you know, I, I can't say that from a anecdotal standpoint. But on a on a national scale, mm-hmm. I think the stats are there that black people are going to jail more frequently and longer uh, for the same types of crimes gotcha. uh, that other people commit. So I think I think the stats, the statistics are there. Yes, that yeah. this is that this is the case, and we're not imagining this. Yeah, gotcha. where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah, yeah. we're not imagining this. It is it, it is the case. Hmm. So I, I know what you wanted to do when you were 12 and 13, and I'm not exactly sure your age now, which is kind of cool, relevant to the conversation, but what, what are your long-term goals? Is this what you want to do for the next 20 years, or is there something beyond this? I think I, think I want to do this for a, a little while longer. I think um, the long-term goal really is to, is to maybe get out of the civil service, maybe going to some type of, level, some type of entrepreneurship, and just you know, kind of be a small business owner, and kind of move into that into that uh, category. Uh, oftentimes, I think about you know, I don't have children, but if I did have children, you know, um, I want to leave something for them. Mm. You know, uh, what you waiting on, man? This this entrepreneurial world is, is big enough for all of us to get in and eat. Well, I'm actually working on something right now. I'm um I'm in the process of getting a, a loan signing agent business off the ground. Um, I have all my stuff that I need to do it. I, I just really just need to start booking the appointments. Uh, the thing that's really been holding me up, I just, I've really been busy with work. My, my main nine to five mm. has, has been keeping me, I was working till almost seven o'clock today. Uh, wow. uh, I know once I got off the phone, I talked to Vic earlier on the phone today. And once I got off the phone with him, I got, I got back to doing some more work. Wow. <laughs> wow. wow! I understand. They they talk about the workload of you know attorneys, the caseload yeah. being so massive and so overwhelming. Um, it, it's true. Like what you what you hear, what you see on TV, it's real. That's how much work there is for you all to do. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, for sure. I mean. Um, you know, earlier in the pandemic, uh, things kind of slowed down because we didn't really know exactly how we were going to handle things. So for 
you know, a few months, you know, I was still doing some stuff, but I didn't have a ton of things to do. And then kind of once we figured out a program, we figured out what we were going to do with this new reality. Cause I think everybody was trying to figure that thing out. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we, once we, once we came up with a plan, like, you know, we were able to start tackling things and, and things has just been, you know, really been busy. And plus we've had a backlog of cases. Playing catch up. Uh, yeah, playing catch up and stuff like that. And so, and, and so now it's just really just trying to follow up with uh, victims, uh, you know, follow up with defense attorneys, try to get some of these cases resolved um, because we just can't have cases sitting around forever. Right, right. Let's, uh, let's do this. We'd like to get to know the person outside of their work because there is a such thing as work-life balance, uh, but really who we are in our personal is also a major reflection of who we are in our professional. So here's a question for you, and you have to give us an answer. Three people in your life that inspire you, who would you say they are? Um, I would say both of my grandmothers, my mother's mother, Brenda Miller, my father's mother, uh, Wendell Smith, uh, for sure. Uh, they definitely inspired me. Um, and if and you don't last, mind, tell us why too. Okay. So my, my, uh, my grandmother on my mother's side, my maternal grandmother, she definitely inspired me because, uh, you know, I saw this woman, she was, uh, she had nine kids. She raised nine kids by herself. Um, she was, you know, always kind to people, always willing to, uh, to, to give a helping hand. Um, she never turned her back on anybody. And, you know, just, she's always had, you know, she's always had jobs and she's always worked and, you know, she just, she's just an energizer bunny. And, and so watching her and her kindness and the way she's even, she's moved people into her home. Um, just that type of kindness is, is contagious. And I've adopted uh, some of her ways and her traits. I think her children have, my mother has, and I think that's rubbed off on me. So that's definitely an inspiration to me, just watching her move and how she how she operates. Um, it's, it's definitely some learned behavior. Uh, my grandmother on my father's side, my paternal grandmother, um, Wendell Smith, uh, I think, well, when she passed away, it was Wendell Murphy. But uh, I think uh, she inspired me because this is a woman who um, was from uh, Jamaica and she moved to the United States and she had to leave her children in Jamaica. And Mm. she worked very hard to bring all of her family, uh, well, most of her family to the U.S., you know, and I, I think about that immense sacrifice to have to leave your children behind in another country uh, to come to another country and work or whatever. And so I always try to honor her and uh, in, in what I do um, because, you know, all the efforts that she made you know, in her lifetime to have her, to, to, for her grandchildren, her grandson, to be able to be an attorney in Washington, D.C., I, I don't want to take that for granted. And I always want to honor her. And that was part of, you know, some of the things I would think about when I'm just studying in college and law school hmm. was the struggle that she had to go through coming from a third world country. And I want to make sure that uh, that wasn't in vain. Um, so that's uh, 
But if, I guess if, if, if I could, if I'll, I'll take it outside of the family. Um, I'll take it to, you know, I don't know how your viewers would feel about this, but I, I would say, um, or listeners, I would say Malcolm X, Elijah, El Hodge, <laughs> El Hodge, um, I think, not Elijah, but um, El Hodge, Malik Shabazz. Uh, I, I would say that um, that brother really inspired me, man. Reading his autobiography uh, was probably one of the most uh, life-changing experiences I ever had. Um, you know, it. I think that right there really made me think about who I am, what I am, and why I am, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it just, just basically like, you know, I'm a, I'm a black male in America, uh, you know, as, as far as like, you know, what I am, like, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing in my life? Why am I here? You know, and not as like, as far as from like a, a standpoint of uh, like a spiritual or religious standpoint, but just from like a, a historical standpoint, historical significance, like how did I get here in this moment? How did my family get here in this moment? What happened to, to, to allow me to be in these conditions that I am in, in this moment, you know? And so, and, and that goes back to, I'm in my neighborhood. I go to my classmates' neighborhoods and I'm looking and seeing how they're living and I'm looking and seeing how I'm living. And it's like, what conditions created my current circumstance, mm -hmm. you know? And what do I need to do to change those circumstances. And so um, I, that brother was definitely very powerful and influence, influential um, in my life and definitely made me think about things uh, from a different perspective. Wow, that's dope. That's dope. Um, you've given us a lot of examples from your work. What's a defining moment in your life? that has also helped to shape the man that you are today? Hmm. I know deep, right? Yeah, defining moment in my life that helped to shape. And, and while you think about it, I'll, I'll share this. Um, I don't know if I, that I ever shared this with you. So, you know, when we were in college and you saw that a lot of us from Florida, Georgia, all these places where we couldn't just up and go home when we wanted to, yeah. you know, we struggled. We struggled. Um, we struggled mentally to connect because, you know, the school was a ghost town. Yeah. And you lived in Cincy a couple hours away. And I don't know if I ever thanked you for that, but I appreciated that experience and that opportunity, one, because it further reinforced um, the idea that you have to get out of your comfort zone. Mm -hmm. You have to go see and experience other places, other things, other people. You know, and coming from Florida, the melting pot, I was used to being around people from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. But when I got to Kentucky, it was such a stark difference mm -hmm. that it almost, I mean, it really did send me into culture shock. And I mm -hmm. forgot what it was like to appreciate differences mm. and appreciate new places. I mean, Tasha, my wife, is from Cincy. 
I would we would not have met had you not introduced me to Cincinnati, had you yeah. not been someone who was willing to share their world with somebody else. You know, right. yes, we formed a friendship. Yes, we were teammates, but I appreciated that opportunity. I remember that first time you took me to Skyline Chili. You asked me if I ever had spaghetti chili. And you asked me <laughs> if I wanted a three-way, four-way. Like, I remember that. Chili Mac. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember it was so vivid. It was so vivid, right? And it was things, you know, from our time together. And we had we had a good time. Me and Tez used to hang out. But I never got a chance to say that. But I say thank you for, for uh, bringing me to your home. I met your mother. Yeah. I met your family. They welcomed me in. And I've been family ever since. So I appreciate that. You know what, man? I... <sighs> You know, that's something I'm probably going to have to think about a lot more. But I would say um, that was that was like defining in my life, a life-changing, defining moment. Man, it was probably, you know what, it was, it was probably just uh, when I came to, uh, to D.C. and I interned in the summer of 2008. I was an intern out here. Um, and I was trying to make a decision if I was going to move uh, to D.C. or not. I think just having that experience coming out here and I think just being around uh, other young Black people who were, what, I was young at that time, <laughs> but being around other young Black people uh, who were doing something with their lives, who were going into their professions, mm. um, I think just being around those type of people just – it. It, you know, it was it was very exciting for me. It was like I finally found, you know, not just black people, but I found black people who were like me, you know. And so that was definitely something that definitely changed my my outlook and my worldview. You, you know, and that, the more I'm talking about it, I would say um, I would say the culture shock that I felt is definitely when I moved to D.C. and I saw black neighborhoods um where people were doing well yeah black people doing well and that was definitely because growing up in cincinnati i mean you got you got a few black people doing well but on a large scale you don't have black neighborhoods where you have you know you see wealth and you see you know financial success yeah so that was definitely a, a a culture shock and a difference. And that definitely changed my perspective. All right. Well, Tez, man, I appreciate you coming on with us, man, sharing your story, sharing um, your examples in different ways of how you are positively impacting your community uh, through the justice system. So keep going, keep doing that, keep encouraging others to do that. Um, and, and hopefully this thing will turn around and good luck in your, your business venture that you, you, you going after as we talked offline. Let's close it out with this quote, man. I found this quote um, just scrolling through social media. Uh, It popped up on my timeline, but it stuck out to me. And the quote says, you can't wait for the world to start feeling visible. You can't wait for the world to start feeling visible. The reason that stood out to me is I think all too often we wait for validation from other people for us to say, that we can do it, we have done it, we have made it. 
And so like always to our audience, Purpose Addicts, don't wait for the world for validation. Validate yourself. Go get it. Live life on purpose. If you haven't, subscribe, like, share the show. We also got a YouTube channel. Check us out. You'll start to see the videos and short clips posted there. Purpose Addicts, we appreciate you. We out. Yeah.